So week two in in Jude. Um, Very quick recap because we started five verses in. Um, Last week we saw a tension. We saw a tension. Um, On the one hand, verse one in Jude, we see that God's people are called, loved, and kept. Kept for Jesus. We saw that last week. Our salvation is secure. It's at the beginning of the letter, verse 1, and it's at the very end of the letter. Now to him who is able to keep us. God's people are kept safe, surrounded, secure for heaven. And if we were kind of trying to think of a picture of the Christian life, well, it might be um, a, a long path, a long path ahead with our heavenly home at the end. And all sorts of twists and turns along the way. But Jude says, one day we will arrive safe, secure, protected because of him. On the one hand, we are kept for Jesus. But last week we saw, on the other hand, there is also a threat. Verse 4, there are some false teachers at the church that Jude is writing to. And these teachers are saying that being saved by grace is, in verse 4, you might see, a license for immorality. Being saved by grace means I can live how I like. Last week, I had a bit of paper, an immorality license. We can carry it around with us. Because we're saved by grace, well, I've got a license to do what I like. That is what they are being taught. That is a threat. We can have Jesus as saviour, but ditch him as Lord. And they were probably saying this more with their lives than with their lips. We can speak in different ways, can't we? Well, Jude says this, verse 4, it is a perversion of grace. Really, being saved by grace isn't a license for living how we like. Being saved by grace is knowing that you are forgiven through Jesus' death, that you are freed from sin to know and enjoy not living for yourself, but living for him, the best, the kindest, the wisest master and friend. As they pervert grace, then they deny Jesus as Lord. And Jude isn't sure that these guys can spot the threat in their midst. So he writes this letter. So going back to our picture of a path, uh, what might this look like? Well, maybe some turnings to the right and the left appear on a path. Maybe some of them look quite nice turnings. But as we go down there, we may endanger ourselves from arriving home. Maybe that appealing valley off to the right here is actually filled with landmines. Or the forest to our left has got wild bears. The mountains up here may be used by SAS training with live ammunition. And that lakeside over there, well, really, it's just next to an MOD biological warfare testing center. It all looks fine. But before you know it, you would be in trouble. But the threat is hard to spot. So on the one hand, they are kept they're also threatened. And how do these two things fit together? They feel like opposites, don't they? We'll go back to our, our picture. We're, we're walking down the path. We are called. We are, we, are, we are heading home. How would we keep going? 
How would we not veer off this way or that? Well, one thing would be by having warning signs, alerting us to the danger on each side. And the other would be by having a picture of just how precious and wonderful home is. We just said, Jude, he starts with our secure salvation. He ends with it. But in the middle, it is full of warnings. That's what we've just read. These might seem opposites, but actually, they fit together. Because the warnings are one of the big ways that Jesus keeps us. One of the ways he keeps us going on the path is by warning us. We just sang, uh, we, we all know the sense of that, those different pathways, don't we? We just sang, um, when the tempter would prevail, and we feel those moments, or I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. I can feel fearful at times. Or my love is often cold. How are we kept? Well, one of the ways Jesus keeps us is by warning us, showing us the danger. So this morning we're going to walk along the path and inspect the kind of warnings that Jude is laying out um, for us. Because we are also threatened by that same perversion of grace, aren't we? That temptation to say, oh, I quite like Jesus as saviour, but I'd rather not have him as Lord. I'd rather just get out my immorality license and live how I like. And we see that in the world, we see it in the church, and also in our own hearts. I thought a bit about that last week. So my prayer is that as we listen to these warnings, that they would be something that Jesus uses to keep us going, to contend for the faith. Now, the core problem of denying Jesus as Lord is the idea of rejecting his authority. And that that's kind of the the key thing that runs through these verses. So we're going to kind of pick up four different angles um, on that idea, four different uh, warnings. Um, And in case you're worrying when we get to point two, gosh, this has been long. Point two is very short. So um, here we go. Four different angles, four different warnings to keep us. The first, rejecting God's authority is arrogant. Jude starts this section with three Old Testament examples um, of rejecting God's authority. Verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. Let's have a quick look at them. Uh, The first one, verse 5, he says, Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. So example one comes from the Exodus. Israel were rescued from slavery, led to the land, and God told them to go in and said, I will be with you. But they refused to listen. They said, we don't believe your promises are true or even worth believing. They rejected his authority. And so they forfeit blessing and life. Second example, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Now this example is probably referring to Genesis 6, 
Um, and it's an incident where angelic beings slept with human women. Now, there's lots of debate about who exactly they were and what's going on, um, but the point seems the same regardless. These angels were given roles and tasks by God. You see that? They were given positions of authority in verse 6, but they reject God's authority. Third example. In a similar way, verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Literally, that word means other flesh. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. The third example is from Genesis 19, where God sends three angels to Sodom and Gomorrah to help save Lot. The angels stay with him, but the men of the town come out and they demand that the angels be handed over so that these men can have sex with them. It's a lot, isn't it? We've just tackled one, two, three. Maybe Jude did a sermon on each of these. We don't know, but it's, it's possible. In verse 5, Israel rejects the authority of God's promises, his commands. Verse 6, angels reject God's boundaries by sleeping with humans. And in verse 7, well, humans reject God's boundaries by trying to sleep with angels. That's the other flesh that he's talking about. Now, you might be thinking, if this is what rejecting God's authority looks like, then actually, I'm probably doing okay. I did not refuse to enter the land, and I do not have an angel problem. But have a look at verse 8. Who are these examples like? Why is, why is he bringing them up? They seem so obscure. Verse 8, in the very same way, these. Now, every time he mentions these in this section, he's talking about the people who are in Jude's church, the false teachers. These ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. These false teachers, these guys that have come into your church, that have slipped in, they are just like this. They're doing exactly the same thing. Um, that phrase, heap abuse on celestial beings, sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? Um, in Galatians, we read that the law, um, God's Ten Commandments and the rest of the law you see in Exodus, that is given through angels. Angels were kind of God's messengers. And I think that's what he's talking about here, heaping abuse on angels. Not listening to an angel, if an angel was bringing God's message, was like well, not listening to God himself. So that, that's kind of what he means by that phrase. They're polluting their bodies, rejecting authority, and not listening to God's messengers. Well, that's what they're doing. They're doing exactly the same things. Uh, the heart attitude is just the same as those three examples. But why? Why do they do this? Well, verse 8, at the beginning, it is on the strength of their dreams. For Israel, for the angels in Genesis 6, and for the men in Genesis 19, and for these teachers in Jude's day, Rejecting God's authority is really about replacing God's authority with your own. It's about following your own dreams. It's an act of arrogance 
and pride. And if that's what rejecting God's authority is, replacing it with our own, then we know, don't we, that I don't have to be an Israelite wandering on the way to the promised land to reject God's authority. I don't have to be uh, an angel who wants to have sex with human women. I don't have to be uh, a man who wants to have sex with angels. I just need to replace Jesus' authority uh, with my own and say, well, this is what I'm dreaming. I just need to ignore his words and commands and say, that doesn't really fit my dreams. Now that begins to land quite close to home, doesn't it? At this point, uh, Jude gives an illustration in verse 9. And apologies, we're going to have to take another little tangent to to tackle this one. Let me read verse 9. Even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, if, um, if, if you're not, uh, if you want to zone out for a couple of, like one minute, this is your moment, you can. I'm just going to explain what's going on here. I don't think you have to know, but I think if I don't, you might think, oh, I really wanted to know. So here we go. Reading this little verse here is probably a little bit like someone quoting a joke from Shakespeare um, that's been already translated into French, maybe, uh, and it's happening in a class in Iran of reception children. It would be very hard to understand, and even explaining it would be complicated. This verse is is famously confusing. Uh, I don't really think I understand everything, but, but here's a couple of things. So in Jude, um, he quotes a couple of books that are not in the Bible, that are old sort of Jewish writings. Um, So this one here, verse 9, is called The Assumption of Moses. And then in verse 14 and 15, we get something, uh, a book by, I think it's First Enoch. Now, these books, these writings, they were popular at the time, and Jude is quoting them like an illustration. So a bit like uh, we would use a book or a film or or something else to make a point in a sermon, uh, or Johnny would use the Lord of the Rings, Um, he's he's just quoting them because they know the story and it's a way of showing the points. Now the problem for us, we do not know the story and so it doesn't really land um, and it feels very confusing. Now the fact that Jude's using this doesn't mean that that these books should now be in the Bible, should we start adding them to the end? Um, It doesn't mean that Jude should be taken out of the Bible either. He's not using it as an authority. In fact, the things he says can be found from elsewhere in the Bible uh, as well. He's just using them because they were the right thing to make the point for the people in front of him. But the point that he's illustrating is the same. It is the arrogance of rejecting God's authority. So if you zoned out, you can wake up again now. Um, What is going on here? Well, in this book, The Assumption of Moses, um, this is a bit like explaining a joke, sorry, but here we go. Moses has died. We get that at the end of Deuteronomy. And there is this debate as to what should happen with his body. Satan is accusing him. He is saying, no, Moses' body should not go into the presence of God because even though Moses brought God's law to God's people, He broke it, so he shouldn't go. Now, enter stage right, stage left. We've now got Michael. Michael is the highest of the angels. Um, He appears elsewhere in the Bible. 
and a dispute happens over Moses' body. That, that's what's happening in this, in this book. And the key verse is that one in verse 9. Michael did not himself dare to condemn him for slander. Now, there are a couple of ways that you can take this. Um, it depends on who the him is. So either Michael says, I'm not going to uh, condemn Satan. I'm, I might think Satan is wrong for saying Moses can't be a God's presence, but I'm going to leave judgment to God. And I'm to say, the Lord rebuke you to Satan. So he could be talking about Satan. He doesn't want to pronounce a judgment on Satan. Or he could be talking about Moses. He could be saying, well, actually, I think Moses was, was all right. I think he trusted in the Lord. Um, but you know what? Only God can decide who goes into God's presence. So I'm going to leave that into God's hands. The Lord rebuke you. Bottom line, whichever one you take, he is saying, I don't have the authority to make this call. Only the Lord does. And the key thing is, this illustration is showing us the highest ranking angel. The biggest, the best, is humbly acknowledging that he can't stand in the place of God. He can't pronounce a judgment that only God can. God decides right and wrong, not Michael. However great and powerful he is, he refers back to him. He knows his place. And I think that's the illustration. We are to be like Michael. We are to be like Michael and say, the Lord is authority over us. Um, there was, uh, some of you will remember Michael Jordan when he was actually playing basketball. Some of you might have seen this um, wonderful documentary on Netflix called The Last Dance, which kind of takes you through his last basketball season in the early 90s. Um, Michael Jordan uh, paired up with Nike, and they made these shoes called Air Jordans, uh, which were very popular in the late 80s, 90s, I think. And uh, the advertisement was, be like Mike. And the idea was, if you've got these shoes, then you can do anything. You can be a sports star um, like that. Now, we're not to be like Michael Jordan, but I think here we are to be like Mike. We are to be like Michael, to refer authority back to God, to have the humility of that. But what are these false teachers doing? But they're no one compared to Michael. They're not an archangel. But they heap abuse. Verse 10, they slander whatever they don't understand. And even what they do, they do understand by, they do it by instinct. As irrational animals. And that will destroy them. In their pride, they go with their instincts. They just go with what they feel is right. And that is very familiar, isn't it? Think, well, I don't really understand all of the Bible, but I think it's about, I think it's about love. I think it's about love. And that meant that marriage with one man and one woman for life was the right thing. But my instinct says things are different today. As long as people love each other, the Bible's about love, then that's okay. Sleep together, live together, as long as it's about love, that feels right. That's what my instinct is telling me. Or what about, the Bible says flee from sexual immorality. But things seem different today, don't they? My instinct is that the world has changed a lot since Bible times. I think 
The Bible just says, as long as you don't hurt anyone, it's all right. As long as people are consenting, then you can look at this thing or have these thoughts. My instinct says that's fine. Or maybe the Bible seems to talk a lot about sin. But I think we live in a different world now. My instinct is maybe instead of reminding people of their brokenness and things we get wrong, we should just affirm everybody in their choices and what they do. We see it everywhere, don't we? And not just outside, but in here. Rejecting God's authority is arrogant because it replaces the greatest authority with our own feelings, our own instincts. It's what we see right back in Eden. And it's deciding that that warning sign on the path, well, it's not correct. I'm just going to walk on anyway. It, it looks fine. It doesn't look like there are any minds there. I'm just going to go for it. Well, Jesus keeps us on the path by warning us that it is, it is not fine. It is not safe. That's the first thing. That's the longest of the four. Rejecting God's authority is arrogance. Secondly, rejecting God's authority is corrupting. We've got three more Old Testament examples. Well done. We're hanging on. There's lots of Old Testament examples here. Verse 11, he says, Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. That's the first example. Jude takes us back to Cain. Remember Cain and Abel, Genesis 4? He murders his brother. Now God warned Cain. He said, Sin is crouching at your door. And Cain knew what the right thing to do was. But he didn't believe the warning. He rejected it, and it led to murder. He was overcome by anger. The second example, they rushed for profit into Balaam's error. This is Numbers 24, 25, uh, and then 31, if you want to look at it later. We meet this guy called Balaam. Now, he was a prophet. He should have known God's authority. uh, But he sees an opportunity for profit, making some money on the side, and hatches a scheme to get God's people to have sex with local women. He rejects God's authority because he's overcome by greed. And you see, his sin, it corrupts other people as well, doesn't it? And the third one, they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. This is number 16. A guy called Korah decides Israel needs a new leader and tries to overthrow Moses. And all his grumbling encourages others to follow. Eventually, Moses gets an assembly together and says, God, you can judge between the true leader and this contender. God's judgment lands, and every Korah and everyone who he has corrupted are judged. The earth opens it up and swallows 250 of them. And then it's followed by a plague where 14,700 people die. Korah's rebellion, his rejection, cost nearly 15,000 people their lives. Three examples of how God's authority corrupts other people. Each time we see that pattern we saw before, they're taken by their own instinct. Cain is overcome by anger. Balaam, overcome by greed. Korah, by jealousy and ambition. But this sin doesn't just affect them, it affects others too. Jude wants us to see rejecting God's authority, it never happens in a vacuum. It always impacts those nearby. 
And he needs them to know because there are people in their church that are going to affect them too. Now, these examples, just like the ones we had before, they make it sound like it's really obvious, don't they? I mean, a murder, a rebellion, it's quite kind of, quite black and white. And we think, well, we wouldn't be silly. We wouldn't follow Korah into the belly of the earth. But the pattern is the same whenever we reject God's authority in a big way or a small way. Jesus talks about it, doesn't he? The yeast of the Pharisees working its way through a whole batch. Or in 1 Corinthians 5 about the yeast of sexual immorality. And I think our experience of that is quite true as well. Um, Silly example, but if you've ever been, I don't know, maybe in Oxford College or a National Trust place, got the little sign, keep off the grass, you tend to think, I'll keep off. And then you see a few others trundling along. And then there's like 50 of them, and you think, well, it's got to be fine, hasn't it? No problem. It's always easier to join in when others have forged the way ahead. No one wants to be first, but we're quite happy to be second. Rejecting God's authority corrupts not just the the person who's doing it, but leads others into sin as well. So he's telling them, be warned, look at this sign on the path. Third thing, rejecting God's authority is fruitless. Sophie and I got given a plum tree at our, um, for our wedding. Um, and this week, we ate the first harvest. Two plums. Two plums. They were really good. But there were only two, but they were great. Um, have you ever planted something and sat waiting and waiting and waiting? And you think, come on, I'm going to give it some plant food, some water. Um, yeah, there we go. That feeling, that is, that is what is happening here. We often reject God's authority because we think, oh, if I plant over here, the result's going to be more fruitful. But we ignore the abundance of life that we already have. Um, we didn't look at verse 2 of Jude last week, but there's a wonderful prayer. Um, he says this, May mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. They are ours in Christ. We so easily forget that and think, oh, this way will be more fruitful. But Jude is saying as we reject God's authority, it is actually fruitless. It is like planting something and waiting and waiting and waiting. These false teachers were planting, but they were promising much and delivering nothing. And he gives us a bunch of pictures that really powerful ones to, to show. Let's just have a look at a few of them. Verse 12 and 13. He says, these, these false teachers are like shepherds who feed only themselves. Um, this is picking up on Ezekiel 34 imagery. Um, as a shepherd, they seem to be promising care, wisdom, protection, leading us to good pastures, water, but they just eat it all for themselves and leave you hungry. Or they're like clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. In an arid country like this, the day that you see clouds on the horizon, when it hasn't rained for months and months, you, such promise. Oh, they're going to come, they're going to water, finally we're going to have our crops growing. These teachers are like those clouds, offering new life, freedom and flourishing. But the clouds come, and then they keep going, and they don't rain disappoints 
and you're left watching dry and thirsty. Or they're like autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They're like trees which look like they're going to give you loads of fruit, but after waiting so long, there is nothing, not even two plums. And you realize why. They don't have any roots. They've severed themselves from Jesus, perverted grace, and denied him as master and lord. They are like wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, verse 13. They look calm, but inside they're bringing chaos, and all that they stir up brings shame to the surface. They're like wandering stars, for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. In the first century, you would have Google Maps, look up to the stars for finding your way, and your one hope was that the stars, even though you know, the, the, the planet is turning, so where they are each night might be a bit different, in relation to each other, they're, they're pretty solid, pretty dependable. You're, you know, once you've got them in your sight, you could navigate. But these false teachers are like stars which move. It's like getting a map out and realizing that, I don't know, Birmingham and Edinburgh and Cardiff have all, they're not where they were anymore. Like how, how do you deal with that? Depending upon this map will leave you lost and adrift and dashed on the rocks. They say that rejecting God's authority promises much, but it won't deliver. It's fruitless. But even worse than fruitless, lastly, rejecting God's authority is deadly. Verse 14 to 15, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude's using Enoch, remember one of those other um, books of the time to illustrate what will happen to those who reject God's authority. He's basically quoting a bit of Deuteronomy and a bit of Isaiah here. The Lord will come in judgment and convict and judge them of their sin. And verse 16, Jude links it, doesn't he, to the people who are in their church. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. Jude's words are not easy to hear, and they are not said lightly. He's serious and he's strong because the danger is real, and he's concerned for his friends. He wants them to walk on that path and to see every warning sign along the way. And Jude hasn't just left it till now to say it, has he? As we've been walking along this morning, we've seen uh, actually this warning at, at every stop. It's a bit like a red circle around maybe each of them. Verse 5, what happened? Those who did not believe were destroyed. Verse 6, the angels kept in eternal chains until the judgment of the great day. Verse 7, the men of Genesis 19 are under a punishment of eternal fire. Verse 10, the teachers, they're destroyed by all that they understand instinctively. Korah's rebellion leads to perishing. Jude wants them, and he wants us to see that rejecting God's authority, taking Jesus as just saviour and rejecting him as Lord 
is deadly. Because he knows that rejecting him as Lord, rejecting his authority, it means rejecting him as Savior as well. There's an interesting detail in verse 5. You might have a little footnote on the word Lord. Um, Verse 5 says, The Lord who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. ESV and your footnote you might have translates the Lord as Jesus. The pre-incarnate son, the Lord Jesus, saved people out of Egypt, but also destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus, in this one verse, is the one who saves, but also judges. And it depends whether they receive him as lords or not. Jude keeps them going by warning them. And Jesus keeps us going by warning us. And what's true for them is true for us. We need to hear that warning as well, don't we? We can be so tempted to to reject him, to reject his rightful lordship over our lives when we just don't feel like it, when our dreams say something else. But Jude says, if we do that, we are dancing with death itself. So four things. Rejecting God's authority is arrogant, corrupting, fruitless, and ultimately deadly. So Jude says, what should we do? Well, secondly, and very briefly, we remember Jesus' words. Uh, Verse 5 says that everything that's about to come is a reminder from the Old Testament. And then verse 17, we get to the New Testament, and we get that word again, remember. You must remember, beloved, the prediction of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus' words. Firstly, words of warning. Verse 18 to 19, they tell us, well, Jesus basically said this would all happen. He said there would be opposition and people who would bring about division. Jesus never promised that the path wouldn't have those appealing left and rights to it. He knew that this is what it would be like. And in one sense, that is really precious for us to know, isn't it? Don't forget Jesus' words of warning. Don't let those feelings of being threatened make you doubt that he can keep you safe because he can and he will. And he's warning you, warning us to do exactly that. Don't forget his words of warning, but also don't forget his words of love. Did you see Jude uses that word, dear friends, verse 17? Literally, that word is beloved. Get it? In verse 1, in verse 3, he says, dear friends. Here, verse 17 and verse 20. It's a little theme going through. Who are those that he's writing to? They are those who are beloved of God. He reminds them, that is who you are. You need to know that you are loved. You need to know that that is why I'm warning you. And you need to know that you have a saviour who is the opposite of all of these warnings. They are warned because they are loved. You have a saviour whose humility and obedience lead him not to rebellion but to the cross. A saviour who doesn't corrupt others, he doesn't lead them into sin, he leads us into life. A saviour who never fails to deliver what he promises like a cloud without rain. 
but who transforms us and gives us more than we could ever imagine. A saviour who doesn't flatter us like these teachers are doing, but will tell us the hard truths and offer the remedy that we need in himself. Jesus says these words to his disciples. I'll say these words to close. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. He keeps us, and he warns us to keep us, because he loves us. Let's just take a moment to reflect on all we've heard, and then I'll lead us in a prayer.